This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today, I'm with Dr. Ann Garland Mahler. She is an associate professor of Spanish at the University of Virginia. We're here to discuss her book, From Tricontinental to the Global South, Race, Radicalism, and Transnational Solidarity, published by Duke University Press in 2018. Welcome to New Books Network, Ann Garland. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to do the interview. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate it. Let's begin with you sharing a bit about your intellectual and professional background. Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor at the University of Virginia. I have an MA and PhD from Emory University in 20th and 21st century Latin American cultural studies. In fact, I also have a BA from the University of Pittsburgh in that field. Um, But I would describe my doctoral education more broadly as a training in a comparatist approach to the histories of civil rights, decolonization, and radical movements in the Americas. Um, It was a really interdisciplinary kind of comparatist training. Um, I, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and have always been interested in the history of racial justice struggles. And it was in college that I got interested in thinking about those questions more hemispherically across post-plantation economies in the Americas. So when I went on to graduate studies, I wanted to do scholarship that was essentially hemispheric and comparatist in nature. Um, But since so much of that work kind of comes from a U.S. focus that then looks southward, I wanted to have the training in Latin American studies that would allow me to frame things a bit differently. So It was those interests that eventually led to the dissertation that became my first book, um, From the Tricontinental to the Global South. So um, tell us a little bit about the tricontinental um, movement, if you will. How did you become exposed to that group? And and what what are the origins of its solidarity? So um, the tricontinental uh, was a movement that formed in January 1966 when delegates from the liberation movements of 82 nations in Africa, Asia, and the Americas came together in Havana, Cuba, and they formed an alliance against military and economic imperialism. Um, The tricontinental organization, it's called the Organization of Solidarity with the Peoples of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, or the OSPAL. Um, It really became known for these striking, artistically innovative films, posters, and magazines that it published in English, Spanish, French, and sometimes Arabic, and distributed around the world. Um, This is a movement that played a pivotal role in generating international solidarity with the U.S. civil rights movement, 
as well as with the anti-apartheid struggle, um, its vision of global resistance. It was shaped by its foundations in Black internationalist thought and by the close involvement of African-American and Afro-Latinx activists. Um, the OSPAL has been in existence and, and continued to circulate materials up until its closure in June 2019. So it had just a profound impact on creating a kind of discourse and aesthetics of radicalism for movements around the world. And in the book, I, I trace the presence of this discourse of tricontinentalism in a wide array of radical texts in the 1960s, but also in present day uh, political posters and such. Um, in terms of, you asked about um, my interests, like how I became interested in this movement. Um, this really started when I was a doctoral student. I had kind of two major interests that led me in this direction. On the one hand, I was interested in the relationship between the Cuban Revolution and African-American activists from the U.S. South, people like Robert F. Williams, and some of the cultural production that came out of that exchange. Um, that sort of internationalist element of the Black freedom struggle was simply, you know, it's just not something that I had been taught growing up. So I was interested in that. Um, on the other hand, I was very interested in the field of postcolonial studies which has been framed mostly through the history of Afro-Asian alliances. And I was interested in Latin America's kind of marginal position within that field. So as I began tracing African-American and Cuban relations in the 1960s, I started to understand these exchanges as part of the much larger framework of the tricontinental movement. And the more that I you know, looked at what was at that time an understudied movement, the more I was convinced of the ways that the tricontinental transformed our thinking on power and political subjectivity. So I was reading the work of you know, Robert Young, Basenia Rodriguez, Cynthia Young, Vijay Prashad, and many others. And I was doing the archival work and the project just kind of exploded from there and became about this, this broader global movement. That was one of the um, areas that struck me and, and attracted me about your work um, as a historian who teaches world history, but trained as a Latin Americanist. I, I think of uh, mid 20th century uh, transnational solidarities, as you've kind of laid it out, 1955, the Afro-Asian Conference at Bendung, which for our listeners who might want to um, check out after hearing this interview, um, one done by or done with um, Christopher Lee, who wrote Making a World After Empire, the Bandung and its political afterlives. It made me um, curious to understand in, in what ways the, the tri-continental conference, the, the members of OSPAL, um, differed and were similar to the Afro-Asian solidarities that came out of the Bandung conference. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of its of its origins, um, the, you know, in OSPAL, in tricontinental materials, they always talk about the 1955 Bandung Conference as the origin point. Um, in fact, its most immediate origins were in the Afro-Asian People Solidarity Organization, the AAPSO, which had its roots in Bandung. Um, so essentially, when Cuba was ousted from the Organization of American States, it approached the AAPSO about broadening um, to Latin America. And, the, and these were movements, you know, that were intended to provide an alternative power block to the Cold War division uh, between the U.S. and, and the Soviet Union. Um, and the Bandung Conference has received much more scholarly attention. Christopher Lee's work, as you mentioned, has been really important for documenting that history. Um, 
Christopher Lee and I just recently published a, a piece together um, that maybe your readers would be interested in. Um, but we but we could kind of take the Bandung and Tricontinental moments as two major cornerstones of Cold War anti-colonialism, separated by an ocean and a decade. Um, and they're they're different, quite different. I mean, Bandung was a meeting of recently decolonized and decolonizing nation states. It was state representatives who were addressing an experience of European colonialism. Their concerns were about, you know, political and economic independence, nonviolent international relations, nuclear disarmament, et cetera. Um, the Tricontinental was much more overtly opposed to the U.S. government. It was theorizing intersections between histories of European colonialism and U.S. finance capitalism. And um, for this reason, the Latin American region, you know, played a central role. Um, it was a militant movement. Its delegations were not necessarily heads of state. A lot of them were coming from organizations that were in the process of fighting their own governments. Um, and it also included movements from within imperialist countries like the United States. And, and I should say it was much more focused. The Tricontinental was much more focused on Black liberation and specifically on the African-American freedom struggle. But even with all of these differences, the, the transnational anti-colonial solidarity established through the Bandung meeting is something that the Tricontinental will uphold and will extend into the Americas. Yeah, I was I was struck by your your explanation and then your further analysis of um, what you argue as the tricontinental sort of um, articulated postcolonial transnational positionality by which they viewed um, Cold War and empire um, through the experiences of Black liberation or African Americans in particular, and how that in turn um, transformed their own thinking about race or, or, their, or the way that they kind of presented uh, color and race. Would you mind talking a little bit about the ways in which um, their focus on the African-American experience in the U.S. and more broadly um, kind of anti-Black um, conditions around the world shape this, this kind of OSPAL or tricontinental positionality on issues of race and color? Absolutely. And this is really, I think, the crux of the book. And, and like I said, it was kind of what first, you know, got me interested in this movement. Um, so even though it was particularly critical of the United States, the understanding of imperialism and tricontinental materials was not necessarily tied to the actions of any one nation. So um, Tricontinental Bulletin, for example, quotes Stokely Carmichael saying, imperialism is an exploiting octopus whose tentacles extend from Mississippi and Harlem to Latin America, the Middle East, South Africa, and Vietnam, right? So that was kind of the vision that they had. And the logic behind the tricontinental is that the resistance to this global monster has to be equally global, right? So this is what Che Guevara in his 1967 message to the tricontinental talks about as we the exploited people of the world. And so among these exploited people of the world, the tricontinental, especially in its first 10 years, consistently centered African-Americans and consistently presented the Jim Crow South as a microcosm of global empire. You know, it, the idea was like, if imperialism is an octopus covering the earth, then African-Americans are fighting within the guts of the monster, right? Within the belly of the beast was the, was the idea. Um, and so through a focus on the Jim Crow South, these materials often use the Jim Crow categories of white and colored, and especially images of white American policemen and black American protesters. 
And they, they used white policemen to signify global imperial oppression and an African-American subjectivity to stand in for all the exploited people of the world. And so in tricontinental materials, the term colored people, sometimes it's colored and exploited peoples, was used to refer to a shared ideological position where color is, is an umbrella for a politics of anti-imperialism, but it does not necessarily refer to the race of the peoples included under that umbrella. Um, so on the one hand, the focus on the African-American freedom struggle was a way of talking about power in a global sense, right? Where people living within imperialist countries are negatively impacted by global capitalism in much the same ways. Um, and also the use of that Jim Crow category of color becomes a way of talking about a broadly defined political re revolutionary subjectivity that foregrounds black struggles, um, but and then that opens onto a broader collectivity from there. Um, later during the 70s and 80s, apartheid South Africa becomes the microcosm of the tricontinentals movement in the way that the Jim Crow South was early on. So you have that same black-white division that's used to signify, you know, a struggle between global empire and all the exploited peoples of the world. And they start to make comparisons between the U.S. South and South Africa and then the southern cone of Latin America. And there's this kind of pseudo-geographical notion of the South that emerges. And eventually the tricontinental just starts using the term global South to refer to its political community. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm. You, you do a really um, great job early on, both in the introduction and in the, in the first chapter, sort of laying out what you've just done here, providing that, that context, both the antecedents, whether we're talking about the Afro-Asian Conference of Mendung, or if we're talking about wider um, anti-Black international political movements and figures from more well-known people like Du Bois or Richard Wright and, um, or Franz Fanon, but I I was um, excited to to be introduced to and an, a person who seems sort of central to the tricontinental um, movement in Ospal, Walterio Carbonell. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who he was and how he was connected to the tricontinental movement? Absolutely, yeah. This is somebody who um, who I, I I don't know whose work I think is just really important. Um, he was a, a black Cuban scholar and historian. Um, he was the Cuban revolutionary government's ambassador to Tunisia. And essentially the tricontinental, I mean, this was a, initially his idea. Um, he started pushing for a tricontinental conference as early as 1959. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's important to say here is that when we talk about the dialogue with the, the, the tricontinental's dialogue with the African-American freedom movement. And there's a lot of examples of, you know, exchange, right? This was a conversation back and forth. Um, you know, this comes out of a longer history of the Castro government's outreach to African-Americans. And, you know, I, I want to comment here on the dissonance between the fiercely anti-racist rhetoric that we see in tricontinental materials and in the Castro government's domestic discourse on race. And I devote a lot of space in the book to teasing out that dissonance. 
So, you know, as you well know, Sharika, you know, the Cuban revolution has long presented itself as this kind of like final realization of the island's long struggle for black freedom. Um, But Cuba's post-revolutionary racial politics have generally been more like a combination of, you know, the myth of racial democracy, you know, of a lot of lot of Latin American countries that kind of veils inequalities, but then also like Marxist exceptionalism where socialist reforms have supposedly eradicated racial inequality. So, you know, thus basically the idea is that black Cubans don't really need to organize around racial discrimination because we don't have that problem. Right. Um, so, you know, this meant that while the Castro government supported black power and black liberation abroad, it was often really uncomfortable with black political organizing at home Um, And that's something that African-Americans who go to Cuba pick up on really quickly. And Carbonell, Walterio Carbonell is a really good example of this hypocrisy that I'm talking about. So he wrote a book in 1961 that was censored until 2005, which denounced the Castro government's kind of colorblind discourse. Um, He said that it reproduced the nationalist rhetoric that had legitimized the continuation of white power in Cuba post-independence. And because of this book, he he became persona non grata and was persecuted by the Cuban state. So it was really important to me to revive his, you know, that this was his idea, even though, you know, he was, he pretty much erased from this history. Mm. And yeah, it's actually striking um, in the ways that you talk about later in the book, how Cuba um, managed to maintain for, for a considerable period of time this this duality or this um tension over um uh, internationally and publicly kind of denouncing anti-black racism showing solidarity with black liberation movements um particularly as we talk about cuba in the international arena on on, on the african continent for example and in domestically the the suppression of um, race-based organizing, as you've pointed out here, that he becomes um, a figure that you want to know more about, that we haven't fully been able to, before your work, really kind of tease out um, how he was able to already see those contradictions and, and speak to that. To to that point, you, you do um, a number of things in the book that are, are fascinating, and, and you take the tricontinental solidarity, um, not just the the member states or the individuals who help to craft OSPAL, but the ways in which it becomes sort of diffused and, and taken up and, and articulated among other um, communities. And, and I wanted to um, have you talk a little bit about um, the young lords in, in, in New York and other um, New Yorican um, figures who you argue adopted um, some of the, I don't know, effective uh, solidarity strategies of the tricontinental, um, just introduce you know our listeners to the young lords in the context of New York and in how um, the message of the tricontinental um, becomes um, promoted by some of their their members. Sure. Um, so you know, as you said, I mean, one of the main things I'm trying to do is talk about how tricontinentalism as an ideology doesn't really fully belong to the Cuban state, right? It's formed through these exchanges with all of these movements. It's circulating prior to the 1966 meeting, um, you know, and even as like African-American activists eventually distance themselves from Castro and from Cuba, the discourse of tricontinentalism continues to surface in their writings. Um, So the book dedicates a chapter to the Young Lords and to the New Yorican movement. Um, 
to Ospal materials on the young lords and the presence of tricontinentalism in this cultural production as a kind of case study of how tricontinentalism circulated in radical movements outside of materials directly produced by the Ospal. Um, the young lords, for anybody you know who's not familiar, you know this was a group, you know, kind of similar to the Black Panther Party. Um, that came up among Puerto Rican activists living in in Chicago and New York um, in the 1960s and 70s. It was largely um, Afro-Puerto Rican activists, but had um, a a broader membership that included a large percentage of African-American activists. Um, If if you're interested in the Young Lords, I mean, I would certainly point you to the chapter in my book, but I would really point you to Johanna Fernandez's work um, she's really kind of the authority on on the Young Lords uh, movement. Um, but in the book, you know, I'm especially looking at the Puerto Rican and African American solidarity found in in Young Lords and closely related New Yorkian texts. So this includes works by Pedro Pietri, Felipe Luciano, Denise Oliver Velez, um, the Young Lords newspaper Palante, the film El Pueblo Se Levanta, which is an incredible film. Um, and I study how the Jim Crow South became the lens through which New Yorican writers took up structural inequalities in their particular context as part of a larger pattern of imperial power. So this position is frequently summarized in materials written by the young lords through their, they would spell America as like America Um, This was kind of a shorthand for, for the way they talked about this. Um, and, and like in tricontinental materials, the racial oppression of the Jim Crow South, you know, they use it as a microcosm of an unequal power structure, not only in the U.S., not only in Puerto Rico, but around the globe. Um, and I also look in that chapter at the Young Lords Gay and Lesbian Caucus and their sort of more open position on sexuality as yet another example of ways that tricontinentalist movements did not necessarily align directly with the Cuban state's positions at this time. Mm, particularly in in the period of what is it the the 1960s and 70s where there was really a, a kind of a, a hardened you know rule on on these kinds of communities um, within Cuba. Precisely. One of the the points that I think comes away, or I should re kind of articulate it. One of the claims and I think rationales for your work um, that you make in the book over and over, and and you get to it towards the end of it is that there's much that we can can learn about um, kind of the present moment in terms of um, anti-Black um, racism um, movements um, such as Black Lives Matter, but, but, you know, various other sorts that have kind of cropped up all around the world, um, that there's something we can take from the tri- tricontinental moment. Um, what are those things? What what can be learned by studying um, this particular strategy of um, solidarity, um, but also denouncing of 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 anti-black racism, um, and how can it be used to kind of enrich and further what has been a, a really transformative moment in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about how, you know, we are seeing kind of a revival of key elements of tricontinentalism in contemporary social movements in the Americas. Um, we're seeing a revival in some ways and not in others, right? So you you see the legacy of tricontinentalism in a lot of contemporary political posters, 
Um, you see it in kind of like political mashup remix videos on YouTube that are really reminiscent of the newsreels. There's kind of the horizontalist praxis of alter globalization movements that are, is emphasizing lateral dialogues and solidarities among subaltern groups. So there's a lot of returns of tricontinentalism, but I think there's also things that that we we could really learn from looking back to this. Um, I think that its most important contribution was the way that it brought together anti-capitalist and anti-racist movements in a way that centered Black struggles and that was focused on a fight against racial capitalism. Um, much of the critique of the movement for Black lives has been focused on, you know, understandably on reforming the state security apparatus. Um, but I think the internationalist perspective and the focus on the intersection between racial violence and global capital flows is certainly something to draw from. And and there are a lot of there are some important moves in in the move in the larger movement for Black lives. There's some really important moves in this direction. Um, so, for example, I talk about the work of Opal uh, Tometi with the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and they have this notion of transformational solidarity, uh, which I think is just a, 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 a concept that's strikingly similar to tricontinentalism. Um, and it's basically about, you know, centering Black struggles and then, and then opening, opening outward from there. In some ways, um, the tricontinental solidarity movement or OSPAL, you know, specifically has been silenced or, or erased. And, and you and I both know within the field of Latin American studies and, and people who work on race in particular, it's been a long trajectory of discussions about the e- erasure of race and the silencing of race. Um, how might we understand kind of why more of us were not aware of the tricontinental solidarity? Like, how do we um, come to terms with the fact that it has a, a legacy, but not one in which has been um, more powerfully preserved? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think I think there are several ways of answering that question. I mean, you have disillusionment with Cuba's repression of intellectual freedoms. Um, you know, a lot of people, like when I first started working on this project, a lot of people in Cuban studies would kind of be like, Oh, more Cuban state propaganda. Interesting. You know, and so one of my, one of the things I really wanted to make clear was that the Cuban state doesn't really fully control um, this movement and that this is something that really precedes the way that the Cuban state uses it. Um, But you also have the severe weakening of the left in the Americas in the seventies and eighties that I think contributes. But, but I think, as you said, a lot of this is more about um, the structure of academia. And I think one of the more significant reasons is how Cold War anti-colonial discourses became preserved within the academic field of post-colonial studies, um, which has tended to focus on the former African and Asian colonies at Bandung, and which has tended, you know, tended to overlook the Latin American context. There's also this issue, as you mentioned, of um, you know Latin American studies um, being, you know, very much framed in a kind of area studies framework. Um, where there's not necessarily those global connections being made. Also, you know, as you mentioned, the marginal position of Black studies historically within Latin American studies. I think all of these things um, combine. But, you know, within postcolonial studies, when when the tricontinental has been included as part of the history of postcolonial studies, like in Robert Young's work, uh, which has been really important for mine, it's often been a, a pretty cursory discussion 
Um, and I think that the tricontinental had a very different approach to its subjectivity than one that's based on a condition of postcoloniality. Um, but even with this erasure, as I mentioned, I think, you know, it's very much been a part of our collective subconscious. Um, I talk about, you know, Shepard Fairey's poster, Shepard Fairey, who made, you know, who did the Barack Obama Hope poster. Some of Shepard Fairey's posters are direct copies of tricontinental posters. So it's with us, even though, you know, a lot of us have forgotten about it. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the things that our listeners are are unfortunately um, unable to capture in our discussion, but definitely um, within your book, um, in terms of the material that you draw on, much of it is posters, right? Um, could you describe um, maybe one or or you know that you think is pretty striking, maybe even the the one that's the cover of your your book, in terms of getting a sense of how um, the visual representation of this kind of transnational solidarity was presented. Oh goodness, describing an image. Okay, um, that's no, I'm sorry, that's I'm great. No, but they, <laughs> these were, you know, they're really striking. I mean, if you go if you go to Google Images and put in OSPAAAL posters or tricontinental posters, you're going to see a bunch of these and you might recognize some of these images. Um, but we're talking, you know, flat, bold colors. Um, we're talking um, really simple designs, um, very much influenced by cubism. Um, and, and, you know, you can see the, the kind of reverberations of these images. So one, I do an analysis of a really famous poster of Michael Brown um, up against posters that were, Ospal posters that were made after the assassinations of Amilcar Cabral and Patrice Lumumba. And it's just really striking. Even the the colors that are used, the kind of um, the the even the directions that Michael Brown and and these in in these two other images, these assassinated leaders are are looking in. It's you know pretty much exactly the same. Um, so rather than me trying to describe it, I think I would encourage our readers to um, to go look at these, and um, I think you know you'll like what you see. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That yeah, they're they're absolutely striking. And Garland, what are you working on right now? Well, oh, and I will say before I talk about what I'm working on, there's been some really amazing exhibits. I've, I've participated in some exhibits in Chicago and New York of of these posters. Um, so uh, definitely check them out. But but right now I'm on an um, an ACLS. I'm on an ACLS fellowship this year. Um, I'm working on a really exciting new book project. It's about a a network. It's it's got some some overlap uh, with this project. Um, it's about a network of politically radical activists and artists in the American Hemisphere and around the world in the 1920s and 30s. Um, it's primarily focused on the anti-imperialist League of the Americas called LABLA. Um, it was created in 1925 in Mexico City. Um, this is a movement that had a number of well-known people involved, the, the Cuban activist Julio Antonio Mella, Mexican artist Diego Rivera, Javier Guerrero, um, the Italian-American photographer Tina Moldotti, and then lesser-known people like Afro-Cuban organizer Sandalio Junco or the Afro-Chinese-Cuban poet Regino Pedroso. Um, so within two years of the founding of this movement in 1925, they joined with organizations from 40 nations at the 1927 Brussels Anti-Colonial Conference. And there, these LADLA organizers 
interacted with U.S. Black intellectuals and with anti-colonial leaders from Africa and Asia. And so the book is really looking at how these exchanges impacted debates in radical circles in the Americas, specifically on the subjects of Black and Indigenous labor, on immigrant rights, and on racial policing. So it has a similar focus in bringing, bringing Latin American history into a much more global conversation and in highlighting the contributions of Latin American and especially Black Latin American activists and intellectuals to these key historical movements um, that have been so important for the history of postcolonial studies. Well, congratulations on the ACLS Fellowship, and and I certainly will be looking forward to reading, um, you know, your subsequent work, um, whether in article chapters or or book form. Um, it indeed is a a filling of, in of a of a gap that's still quite wide in terms of connecting Latin America, as you pointed out, to these kind of more global um, currents beyond just the hemisphere, which has been, um, I think, widely, um, you know, covered in existing scholarship. And Garland, thank you for being interviewed today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You can find a link to From Tricontinental to the Global South, Race, Radicalism, and Transnational Solidarity on the New Books Network page. Until next time.